Before we start, I want to pray again, so pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we know that you have brought us all here together, and you meant for us to be here. And I pray that your word would have an effect on us, and that it would, uh, it would truly be your word that we hear. I know that I am not adequate to speak it, and so I pray for your spirit to affect us and to put it into our lives the way it needs to be, that we would hear the truth of it. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. amen. <clears throat> we'll be in John chapter 2, so I invite you to open your Bible to John chapter 2. I invite you to open your Bible to John chapter 2, the last three verses of John chapter 2 is going to be our text for the evening. Are you confident? Is there something where you, you find some confidence? Maybe a physical activity, maybe uh, some sort of mental activity, a board game, a card game, something you can do that you're really confident in. Like if you could just make money doing that thing, then you would be, you'd be successful. Like you, you make the best apple pie. If you could just find a way to get it in the market, that you'd be successful. Are you confident in something? Sometimes you see people that have extreme confidence. They're totally self-assured. They, they're going to let everyone know how good they are at whatever it is they think they're good at. On the other side of that, sometimes you see people who have no confidence at all, and they retreat into these little dark caves that are guarded by phobias and depression, and they live there, and they're afraid to act at all because of the fear and the shame that they feel. At the core, it seems to me that these are really sort of the same thing, that extreme confidence and boasting or Depression and phobias are the same. One, one of them says, look at me, glorify me, look at what I can do, and give me the glory that I'm due. And the other one is saying, don't, don't look at me, don't notice me, because I, I need some glory, and I want glory, but I, there's just nothing about me that is going to get me the glory that I need to survive. And so they're both really seeking glory, and they both are trying to feed their souls with, with this and if they don't get it, they're going to starve. And it seems to be very prominent in the day that we live in. It's the age of self, right? It's self-esteem, self-confidence, self-image, self-construct, self-determination, all kinds of self. There's probably more that you could think of to add to that list. It might be the most self-absorbed age in history that we live in. I saw a, a friend of mine had sent me a, a screenshot, um, it was Facebook, and he sent me a screenshot, a screenshot of this post, and this post was, it was some sort of an app on Facebook where you could enter, uh, maybe answer some questions, and it would take your profile picture and your name and insert them into this catchy little graphic. And so this graphic had um, across the top of it, what does God think of you? 
And then in the middle of it was inserted the name of this person who, who used this app on Facebook. And then underneath of it, it said, it said uh, this is how much God is delighted with you. 93%. God admires your self-confidence. And it's just, it's just the age we live in, right? I mean, it's just even that, even this person who claimed to be a Christian thinks that God admires her because of her self-confidence. We're in an age of self. These, <coughs> these social networking apps, it's just a, a symptom of the problem, a way to gain approval, a way to gain glory, seek fulfillment for an empty soul like me, like my opinion, like the pictures I take of myself, like my lifestyle, just like me, like me. If we're honest with ourselves, we'll find ourselves somewhere on that scale, somewhere between the extremes of no confidence and boasting, extreme confidence. It's why James warned against devouring each other. It's why Paul railed against the, and the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, he railed against the way they observed the Lord's Supper. That's why Paul said, be anxious for nothing but by prayer and supplication. Let your requests be made known to God. That's why Jesus said, don't worry about anything but trust in God. So I've been using this word confidence, but it's just another way of saying, what do you believe in? What do you believe in? Confidence is a faith, it's a trust. It's where you find your boldness and your strength. So if you believe in yourself, you may be arrogant and brash and elitist or depressed and afraid. So I ask you to consider, what do you believe in? This brings us to the text, John chapter 2. I'm going to read these last three verses. John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, beholding his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. Because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he knew what was in man. First, what I want to notice, if you're, if you're taking notes, this would be the first thing to notice from the text. Jesus did not believe in them. That's what, that's what the word there, entrust, means. He was not entrusting himself to them. It's the same exact word as believe that he says earlier when they believed in his name. They saw the signs that he was doing and they believed in his name. John uses this word believe over and over and over again. He writes this entire book really just to get us to understand this complex idea of belief. He looks at it from all kinds of different angles and tries to get us to understand what belief is. And at the end of the book he says these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. And so here he says Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Jesus did not believe in them. Why? Well, Jesus knows what's in the heart. God always looks on the heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord looks on the heart. He doesn't see what man can only see. He sees beneath it. He sees, you might see the fruit, but God sees the heart. Jeremiah 17:10 says, the Lord searches the heart and tests the mind to give to man according to the fruit of his deeds. This is why Jesus would say in Matthew 7 that some who did mighty works in his name would be cast out and burned. He didn't know them. 
Hebrews 4 says the word of God judges the thoughts and intents of the heart and determines where we are placing our faith and confidence. So Jesus, knowing their hearts, did not believe in them. They recognized him as the Jewish Messiah. They would have said, it's true, he's the Messiah. They were fully confident, but yet they did not have Jesus. James 2.19 says, You believe there is one God? Good. Even the, even the demons believe and shudder. Demons responded to Christ when he cast them out of people, and they said, We know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. They knew better who Jesus was than these Jews did. Satan himself knows better who Jesus is than these Jews did. He, he knows the Bible inside and out. That's why he spent so much time trying to trip Jesus up when he, he was tempting him. And he is so masterful with the scriptures that he twisted them in an attempt to get Jesus to deny who he was. So even the demons and even Satan believe in Jesus. It's not enough. People are searching for something that they need. And some will think that they are going to find it in education. If they just can get more and more and more educated, that will satisfy their soul. Some people will try to find it in their job. That's how they're going to leave their mark on the world. Some people focus on ethics. What's the right thing to do? The job that I work for, there's a lot of focus on ethics. Teaching people to do the right thing, and it's based on the policy of the organization. No, no thought to the objective standard of God's word or Jesus or God himself. The world needs Jesus. And when these people believed in Jesus, they weren't seeing what they really needed. The text says they saw the signs that he was doing and they believed in his name. They saw what he was doing and what they were saying was, yeah, I'll, I'll take some of that. All that healing he does, all those mighty works he does, we could use that. They weren't seeing that they needed a crucified lamb. We know how this works. We see it all the time, our, our political campaigns. The, the guy who offers the most stuff wins. The guy who can articulate that position the best wins. On one side, it might be giving away free stuff, and on the other side, it's, we'll let you keep all the stuff that you earn. And everybody just wants either free stuff or keep their stuff. I'm going to get my stuff, and it's mine. And that's what's happening here. These people are missing the real need, and they're seeing somebody that they can use. The beginning of John, or John chapter 2, yeah, back in the beginning of this chapter, we see Mary misunderstand Jesus' purpose on earth. That's why he said to her, when, when she asked him to fix this problem of no wine at the wedding, and he said to her, my hour is not yet come. What, he, what he's saying to her is, my hour, and John uses that word over and over again, my hour is not yet come. The reason he came is to die. And that was going to provide Mary's greatest need. It was going to provide the greatest need of everyone there at that wedding feast. And it, he didn't come to fix little problems and to, and to feed people and to heal physical problems. That's not why he really came. But that's all they were seeing. Everyone at that wedding feast, just about everyone, maybe everyone, really missed what he was saying. That, that 
They needed his spilled blood for the remission of their sins. John chapter 6, we see him feed 5,000 people. And the next day, those people go back out to the same spot, and they look for Jesus again, and they can't find him, so they get in boats, and they start rowing around, and they find him eventually. And Jesus says, you didn't look for me because you wanted something that satisfied your soul, but you looked for me because you wanted bread to fill your belly. Or over in John chapter 7, his brothers are pleading with him, go down to Jerusalem into the area of Judea. Leave these sleepy little northern towns where you're doing this work. Go down there and show people who you really are. Do your miracles down there. And in verse 5 of that chapter, John says, they asked him to do this because they did not believe in him. They did not believe in him. That's why they asked him to go do that. They wanted the glory that those miracles could bring to them. This is our brother. We can get connected to this guy, and when he sets up a kingdom, just think of how it will affect our lives and what we can get out of this. So that's what we're seeing. Most of these people here in the end of this chapter, John chapter 2, most of these people want Jesus so he can fix their problems or bring glory to them. That's why people of power gather a following. People latch on because of what it can do for them. It's why social and prosperity gospels are so popular because you can have this guy in your life who's going to give you money and wealth and success and food and just whatever you want. Or the hyper-grace movement. I don't know if you've ever heard of the hyper-grace movement. But it's this idea that Jesus forgave everything you ever did, everything you're doing right now, and everything you ever will do. All you need to do is simply say you believe in him. You don't have to leave your sin. It's just... it's. It's great. It's perfect. Just keep on doing what you want to do and say you believe in Jesus. Of course you'll take some of that. You can have the pleasures of your sin and Jesus. So Jesus, looking on the heart of these people, did not believe in them. They didn't have Jesus, and their real needs were unfulfilled. So next, notice this out of the text. It says, for his part. For his part, he was not entrusting himself to them. And I ask the question, what other part is there? Could they provide a part? Can you provide a part of your salvation? If Jesus doesn't do it, there's nothing. His part is the whole thing. And if you try to add a little part, then you get nothing. They had a plan for Jesus. They had a plan for what they could do with his power. If he just gets in line with where we're going, we'll set him up as a king. And we'll get what we want. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. He knew what was in them. Without Jesus, there is nothing. If we add our part, there's nothing. Jesus is the only part. He's the whole part. How does one approach an infinite, majestic, holy, perfect, all-glorious God without being incinerated? It's only accomplished through Jesus, in whom, John says, we have seen the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And he says, from him we have received grace upon grace. Jesus says, I am the bread, I am the light, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way and the truth, I am the vine. And no one gets connected to the Father unless they're going through Jesus. John moves on in chapter 3, immediately gives us an example of this kind of person. 
might look like John's moving on to something else, but these chapter and verse breaks weren't there when he wrote it. He's giving us an example. Here's Nicodemus, a man, one of these men that he was not entrusting himself to. And he comes and he says, we know you're from God because we see what you're doing. And so Jesus tells him that unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus kind of laughs at that and, and says, right, I'm supposed to climb back into my mother's womb because he thinks that there's something he has to do here. He can't have anything to do with this birth. He's missing the point. He's missing that the kingdom is based in an eternal, ultimate reality. And so he's not getting what he needs. Jesus knows if we're letting him save us or if we're adding any of our part. Belief in Jesus, faith in Jesus, is a total surrender to his saving grace. There's nothing we can do. If we seek some of the glory for our salvation, we get what we're due. We get damned. Belief in Jesus is seeing him as the glorious son of God. Belief in Jesus is seeing him as heaven's Passover lamb and seeing the sacrificial death that he provided that we need. He provided our righteousness. He provided our justification. Faith in him provides us that verdict of not guilty. And we couldn't do any of that. He did it all on the cross. But here's the real encouraging thing to notice from the text. Jesus knows what's in man. And that's encouraging because he knows what's in them. He knows what's in you. He knows what's in me. And he still wants to save us. It says Jesus didn't need anyone to testify to him. He didn't need any close confidants. He didn't need advisors to watch out for his interests. He knows. He knows what's in us. He knew exactly what was in their hearts. He wanted to save them anyway. Have you ever been betrayed? Is there somebody maybe that you thought was your friend or somebody that built you up in some way you felt good when you were around them and you had a chance to overhear them maybe speaking to somebody else or maybe just outright in front of you betrayed you and you realize then who they are and that they're not really concerned with you and that they're just in it for themselves or what they can get out of it. An experience like that could be devastating. Can you imagine the burden that Jesus bore in that regard? To be dealing with people like this his whole life, just days before he was crucified, Palm Sundays, he's entering Jerusalem and they're crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, and treating him as a king. And he knows that by the end of the week, they're going to kill him. The same people are going to be shouting, crucify him. And these people here that are believing in his name, he knows what it's really all about for them. So his whole life, he bears this burden of people who are going to say to him one day, if you can't do anything for us, then we have no need for you. And they would kill him. Of course they wouldn't have salvation because they didn't think that they needed him and that they needed to be saved. But he still wanted to do it for him. He bore all that reproach. He bore all the duplicitous nature of those kind of people. He bore the physical abuse. He bore the taunts, the insults of those who blasphemed him, blasphemed him as one who was working for the devil while they exalted themselves over him. He was God in human form. He could have put them all into an ash heap, just burned them up. He restrained all that. 
so that he could save them. He did that for them. He did it for us. God knows your heart. What do you want from him? You recognize your need? Maybe that all of us in this room would claim to know Jesus in the proper way. With a faith, with a belief that is proper, that looks totally to him as the entire part of our salvation. We might be saying we have the right kind of belief. A belief that's not like those in this text. A belief that goes beyond physical blessings and a desire for just a mere better life on earth. A belief that goes beyond merely wanting to escape hell. Sure, yeah, I'll take Jesus if I can get out of hell. A belief that goes beyond that. A belief that reaches out to God in realization that he is our only hope. A belief that desires to be filled from the inside out with a transformation into the image of Jesus. If there's anyone here without that kind of belief, then Jesus does want to save you right now, tonight. But for those of us who have claimed Jesus in this way, I encourage you to persevere in your faith. A genuine faith is one that will be found totally trusting in Jesus every step of the way, continually repenting, continually calling on his grace to cover our weakness. Philippians chapter 3, Paul speaking to Christians said, Beware of returning to confidence in the flesh. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He goes on to say that whatever confidence he had in the flesh, he counts it all as garbage to know the surpassing worth of Christ. Hebrews 10, 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So directly after warning them, the writer encourages them. Keep the faith. Paul said, keep the faith. Your confidence does not come from self. It comes from the faith that doing the will of God has a great reward. So have confidence, but have confidence in the work of Christ. And have confidence that it will have a great reward for you in doing the will of God. The message is yours. We stand and sing.